Hi everyone, welcome to Identity Crisis, the show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America, and we're recording on April 15th, 2021. Sometimes our show involves going in search of news tie-ins, and sometimes, like yesterday, we just get hit over the head with the news tie-in. It becomes obvious about what to talk about, and that was the death of Bernie Madoff, who I would like to characterize for the purposes of our discussion today as the arch-villain of the American Jewish experience. Bernie Madoff was the perpetrator of the largest financial fraud uh, in history and the largest Ponzi scheme in history, something in the neighborhood of $65 billion, leaving behind enormous consequences for the world of money and the world of Wall Street, consequences for the Jewish philanthropic sector, which were quite significant, some of whom were investors and some of whom were secondary beneficiaries of investments uh, in the Madoff Fund, and left behind huge consequences for the image of Jews uh, in America, all of which I want to talk about today. And to do that, I'm joined by two great journalists. Felix Salmon is the chief financial correspondent for Axios and the host of the Slate Money podcast. And Ben Sales covers anti-Semitism as well as American Jewish affairs for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. And Ben was a previous guest on Identity Crisis and then wrote the Madoff obituary uh, for JTA. Thanks both of you for being here. Uh, Felix, let me start with you. You've written a little bit, I saw yesterday, about how one of the consequences of Madoff was also a larger distrust in financial systems. I'd love to go a little deeper on this. For the money system, it's almost impossible to overemphasize how big this was. Madoff, his Ponzi, one of the most astonishing things about it was how long it went on for. It was it was decades, really. And no one, and he managed to get away with it pretty much indefinitely until the financial crisis hit. And then when the financial crisis hit, a lot of people lost a lot of money. When people lose a lot of money, what they do is they cash out the money that they do have. And the place that they had cash was with Bernie Madoff. And it was really only when his clients started requesting payouts um, after the financial crisis that he was uncovered. If it wasn't for that, it could have gone on for many more years. And so the financial crisis basically not only uncovered Madoff, but because everyone was already angry at the banks and blaming the banks with good reason for the financial crisis, they then realized um, basically exactly at the same time that the banks had been aiding and abetting this massive Ponzi. And so they feel like they just can't trust Wall Street, like normal Americans looked at the financial crisis, looked at Madoff, looked at the Ponzi, looked at the outright criminality involved all across the board. I mean, JP Morgan paid a $2 billion fine just connected to Madoff, not that, not including like the $13 billion it paid for mortgage deals. And they just said, this is corrupt. The whole system is corrupt. We don't trust Wall Street. And the consequences of that were the Tea Party, the rise of Trump, um, the rise of Bitcoin and trustless finance, like everything that's going on right now, like the, the, the entire history of the world, basically, since 2008, a lot of it can be traced back to that massive just evaporation of trust in institutions that Madoff was at the center of. I'm curious, um, 
there were so few prosecutions that came out of the 2008 financial crisis. I think there was like one. <laughs> um, Madoff was different because it was an it was quote unquote an actual crime as opposed to <laughs> as opposed to possibly criminal systems. It, do you think it, do you think that in some ways the prosecution of Madoff and the few people that surrounded Madoff almost had a kind of um, exonerating quality to the rest of the system that you know well we'll 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 actually prosecute where we can actually really call it a crime and it kind of takes the pressure off remedying a system more broadly, or is that an unfair characterization? I, I don't think that there were a bunch of prosecutors out there saying, well, if it wasn't for Madoff, we'd go after Jamie Dimon, you know? Um, I think I think probably the Wall Street execs who got off without any prosecution would have got off without any prosecution, even absent the presence of Madoff. It, that made, the Madoff was an easy prosecution to do. The rest of them would have, would have been very, very difficult. It's hard to find the criminal tort. You know, as they always say, the scandal isn't what's illegal. The scandal is what's legal. And a lot of what a lot of what people did was legal. Although, let's be you know clear about this: a lot of what people did was illegal too. And there were a lot of massive criminal fines surrounding the mortgage industry and various other bits of financial malfeasance in. In, in the run-up to the financial crisis. Let me ask you one other question, and then I want to ask Ben the same question to, to bring him into the conversation, which is uh, one of the unique characteristics of, of the Madoff crisis, which is probably not that unique for Ponzi schemes, is that it was an affinity-based scheme, right? People, people knew Madoff personally, or they knew friends of Madoff, or they knew an accountant who worked with Madoff, and they wanted their money in that system. Perhaps the most crude demonstration of it was the, CF, the CFO of Hadassah, Cheryl Weinstein, who has an affair with Madoff, and through that winds up putting, I think, $40 million from Hadassah into the Madoff accounts. There's just a close interweb connection between a lot, like, between a lot of the people um, who wind up investing in and losing money in the Madoff scheme. For, for people outside the banking system, it is exactly what they view as the problem in this system, which is a, a very closed network of people making money with money with the people they know. So how much does the Madoff, does the Madoff, Madoff story in particular illustrate something about the banking system or, or the finance system that we have to understand more broadly? 100%. And you see this all the time. So for instance, we just saw the big IPO of Coinbase this week, right? Um, so just to take an example at random out of the headlines. And it was worth a gazillion dollars. And all of the people who happened to be friends with Brian Armstrong back in 2012 became gazillionaires. And all of these tech companies that are going public right now, you know, the, the people making money are a very small group of very well-connected venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. Um, if you want to invest in one of the hot big-name hedge funds, you basically need someone to vouch for you, you need to know the right people. Um, there's an entire industry of private banking involved in basically bankers saying, I can introduce you to the hedge funds, I can get you into this fund, I can get you into that, you know, venture capital firm. So there is so much of this kind of access capitalism going on. And that's normal. And that continues to this day. And Madoff completely exploited that. And he was like, you know, when people would go up to him and say, can I invest in your funds? He'd say, no. 
And then, you know, that would only make them want to invest in him more. And eventually he would relent and allow them to invest. You know, it was a it was a great con he had going. Yeah, Ben, when you wrote yesterday in the JTA obit, you said when um, when Madoff, facing increasing pressure due to the national financial crisis, confessed his crime in 2008, the effects were felt across American Jewry, and you gave a number of examples. Why don't you unpack that a little bit? What do you think the consequences were for, we'll get to the anti-Semitism question shortly, because it's, it's kind of lurking behind all of this, but first, the the actual financial implications that that hit, whether it was the philanthropic sector or the Jewish community more broadly. Yeah, I, I mean, when I wrote about the 10-year anniversary of the Madoff scandal two years ago, I called it an American Jewish catastrophe. And I think you said at the beginning of the podcast that he's an American Jewish supervillain. And I think that that's basically accurate. I just remember, you know, I was a college student at the time. And I was in the job market. I ended up working for a Jewish newspaper out of college. And I had a bunch of friends who were also going into that. And just personally, we were talking about Madoff all the time back then because it affected everything we were looking at. And that has continued on a macro scale, not just for me, obviously, and the people I know, but uh, on a macro scale in the Jewish community since then. I mean, it's just a laundry list of large Jewish organizations, many of them Orthodox, but not all. Uh, you know, you talked about Hadassah, which actually ended up being what's called a net winner in the Madoff scandal. They withdrew more of the fake money than they had actually put in and ended up having to pay some of it back. There were some institutions that lost a lot of money. Uh, Yeshiva University, um, the Ramaz School, which is the uh, you know elite Orthodox prep school in New York, um, but also you know organizations that aren't New York Orthodox. Right there was you know Ali Wiesel's foundation lost money. A lot of individual investors lost money. Ali Wiesel, Sandy Koufax, uh, a, a New Jersey state senator. Like the list of Madoff victims, in a certain sense, was the who's who of the American Jewish community in two thousand eight. And the effects, just like Felix, you were talking about the effects of the Madoff scandal kind of shaping a lot of the trends in the financial world or, or in overall society in our conversation about finance over the past decade or so. Uh, I would say that in, in the Jewish world as well, when you talk about fundraising in the Jewish world, uh, it would be appropriate to talk about pre-Madoff and post-Madoff and, and the way we think about that and also the way people who observe and interact with Jewish fundraising, think about, you know, is it the best system to have so much power and wealth concentrated in the hands of a network of a few people who all know each other and interact with each other? Because like you said, you know, that was a lot of what led Madoff to be able to grow this network so large, was that he met people at the Palm Beach Country Club, you know, in Florida, which it was a Jewish country club that had a lot of these kind of who's who people, right? And and in Orthodox circles in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, right? And he was you know, he was the treasurer of YU, I believe, of Yeshiva University, and and you know his allies and feeders, people who kind of fed him investments, um, also held held positions like that. So I, I think you know in the Jewish world, if you talk about the impact, obviously the impact was financial, that there was just a raw amount of kind of money on paper and, and real money that was lost. Um, but also just in terms of 
the way I think American Jews and, and people in the American Jewish fundraising sphere think about what they're doing with their money and, and how to manage that and think about it philosophically. Yeah, although I would say even more than fundraising itself, it's it's also goes to the question of who's managing the investment accounts. The real problem with Yeshiva University, for instance, was that their board of trustees basically handed one of their trustees the university's endowment and said, make money with it. And that was great for a number of years until it was terrible. But that's obviously no way to create real governance over the financial assets of an organization. There's no checks and balances. There's also what winds up happening is in the context of board governance, the lay leaders, the board members, are people who are connected to finance and industry. The Jewish professionals are not. So it's like, okay, well, you guys know how to make money with money. <laughs> Do that, and it'll benefit the organization. But that's a that's a catastrophic setup. So let's talk about the other side of this. And, you know, Felix, you cover the financial systems. There's kind of no way to not witness <laughs> the public conversation, the thousand-year-old conversation about the relationship between Jews and financial systems. The ADL, is, as Ben reported yesterday, documented an uptick in anti-Semitism because of the, of the Madoff fraud. I'm just curious, first, to start with you, Felix, like, what do you see just on a, on a daily basis in your interaction with other people in this field around the ways that people talk about Jews and money? And what happens when things like this, things, controversies like this happen? Because inside Jewish communities, there's oftentimes this like unspoken fear of, oh, there's a big financial fraud. I hope it's not Goldstein, right? Um, because that'll be bad for us. I'm, I'm curious what that looks like inside the coverage and the media world around, uh, around financial fraud. You know, the biggest collapse of the financial crisis, the thing that really, the, the event that more or less precipitated the entire thing um, was not Madoff. It was Lehman Brothers, right? And Lehman Brothers was always the Jewish investment bank, you know, in contradistinction to, say, someone like, you know, Morgan Stanley or J.P. Morgan or someone like that, who was very, like, white shoe, waspy. So that was, you know, that fed into, as you say, like, centuries of image of, like, Jews and money and Rothschilds and Soros and and there was a lot of that sort of going around at the time and and it continued through Trumpism right you know Soros conspiracy theories will never go away um that said I think the idea of like Goldman Sachs is Jewish and you know your other bank isn't I think that's kind of going away like when I was growing up my um my dad was a banker and he was Jewish and he went into banking in the UK, and he went to Rothschilds. That was a kind of natural thing for a Jew to do. And I don't think that really exists anymore, to be honest. Like, everything has become so globalized at this point. Um, the, the talent pool is so global. The senior executive ranks are so diverse. Um, it, it just, like, I don't, I can't think of any major investment bank that would be like, oh yeah, well, you know, we'll naturally just gravitate towards hiring the Jews. I feel like that that used to happen much more than it happens now. And Ben, what do you think when you talk about the the uptick in anti-Semitism? I'm curious what that what what that looks like and what sticks. I, I Felix talked a little bit about Trumpism and Soros. Uh, where else where else are you seeing or hearing in your coverage of anti-Semitism about the relationship between Jews and financial crimes as somehow implicating uh, the Jewish community more broadly? So, 
Madoff as a person doesn't factor into that as much now. I, I think just because a lot of some time has passed and, and people have short memories. Um, but, you know, I think that Felix, the thing that you said was kind of passing in the mind of anti-Semites and people that really invest their identities in that is not passing, right? If, if you, you know, there's kind of different versions of an anti-Semitic meme that go around the far right where they kind of show the headshots of various, you know, heads of financial institutions and media companies and anything else that's traditionally associated with, you know, nefarious Jewish control. And, you know, they'll just, they'll, they'll pick and choose the, the Jews who are at the heads of those organizations and say, oh, look who's controlling the world. As you noted, Yehuda, the main avatar of that, unquestionably, over the past several years has been George Soros. It used to be the Rothschilds. And of course, as we've seen, the Rothschilds still play a part in that rhetoric. Um, but really the person, if you look at who anti-Semites are blaming for kind of a web of control over the world, a web of conspiratorial control, and the person whose name has very clearly seeped into mainstream political discourse, it's George Soros, who, of course, himself is a hedge funder and a billionaire. I kind of thought Adelson. No, not not nearly as much as George Soros. Yeah, he, he's not he's not a financier, you know. Like, like I mean, the the the, the, finan- the the people who really control things, like the the stereotypes you'd see would be people like. Um, Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, even Janet Yellen, Lloyd Blankfein. Yeah, yeah, the people who are directly at the center of the of the system. The hilarious one, of of course, was Tim Geithner, who like was at the at the center of every single like financial system, and everyone kept kept on saying, "Look, it proves that Jews are everywhere." And he's not remotely Jewish; he has no Jewish blood at all. It doesn't really matter whether they're actually Jewish; it's just whether they have the optics of Jewishness. Although, it, <laughs> but, so I think I think part of what makes the the Madoff case different and scary and close to home is exactly this juncture between between Wall Street and the Jewish philanthropic infrastructure, right? And the fact that, like, and that Madoff is sitting on these boards and that a whole bunch of people who are creating philanthropic foundations are are juxtaposed to him. So the, the causes and institutions of Jewish life are part of this conversation in a different way than just this is a Jew who happens to be on Wall Street. Yeah, go ahead, Ben. Right, no, I mean, so so the difference, right, if you talk about, about George Soros, who, to begin with, is much wealthier than, than Madoff was, well, Madoff had negative wealth, so that's not hard. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, one of my favorite anecdotes about Madoff, as an aside, is I believe I read this maybe in New York Magazine or the New York Times Magazine, is that when he was in prison, people would come to him for stock advice and he would say, I never actually managed the wealth. So I don't really know what I'm talking about. I, I mean, the difference between Soros, someone like Soros and someone like Madoff is that Within the internal Jewish conversation, Soros is criticized for not investing in Jewish in what's thought of as Jewish causes, particularist Jewish causes, certainly not, you know, pro-Israel or Zionist causes. And Madoff, you know, to the extent that people thought he was helping them, was the opposite. That that I remember um, Matthew Schwartz, who who led the criminal investigation of Madoff uh, in New York, uh, said that you know people viewed him as a bank. And, 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 you know, Jewish organizations just thought he was a loyal steward of their money and by extension of the causes that they were championing. Of course, it was the exact opposite of that. The more I read about it, it was an astonishingly crude and stupid operation. Because not only were the, was there no stock trades, it was literally just 
like a checking account at Chase. Money came in, money went out. That was all. So the fact that people would look to him for investment advice, it's not just he wasn't managing the money. He never made any investments. To be clear about this, there was a real company called Bernarda El Madoff Securities, which did real things. And it was an important company that he built up legitimately, before, like put aside the whole money management side of things. Um, he invented payment for order flow, for instance, which is this thing that has completely disrupted Wall Street is how stock trades on Robinhood are free. Um, he was chairman of the NASDAQ for three years, I think. You know, he basically created, he helped to make the NASDAQ a real power center and a rival to the New York Stock Exchange. Um, he really understood the dynamics of close market structure back when stocks were traded in like, you know, eighths and sixteenths, and he would get inside that bit off a spread. Um, he was not a just a pure con man, right? He built a legitimate securities business that was genuinely disruptive and important. And then he started a fund. And the fund, like all Ponzi's, you know, started well, and then it started losing money. And then he was like, I'll make it back and not tell my clients. And then it snowballed. But it it wasn't a kind of premeditated, this is how I'm going to con all of American jury kind of con it was uh, you know he he just started lying and then the lies just got bigger and bigger yeah last question for each for each of you which is the story has in some ways been over for some time tell us like if you could project a little bit what do you think what do you think the story that we're going to be talking about in 10 years um about about the Madoff scandal will be so t today is just literally um the moment of reflection because of the day of his death what do you think we're going to be talking about 10 years from now whether in the financial sector Felix any other trends that you think are going to continue in one direction or another as a response to this and then Ben um perhaps in the Jewish world so there's this concept called the bezel, which was um, invented by J.K. Galbraith. And he basically said, when times are good, that's the best time to do a con, right? The, everyone's fe feeling rich. You can kind of invent fake money and everyone trusts you and everyone gets greedy. And then when times are bad, that's when the cons get revealed. Right now times have never been better. There's a huge amount of liquidity. There's a huge amount of fraud. Like we, we saw with the stimulus checks going out to people and the PPP loans, like already there's been billions and billions of dollars of fraud surrounding those. Um, there's a bunch of companies that are all, you know, pre-revenue and raising money at insane valuations. Like that's just a recipe for fraud. It is basically impossible to imagine, given the frothiness of the markets and the amount of liquidity in the markets, that there aren't huge frauds going on right now. We just don't know where they are. And so I would say that if we fast forward 10 years, assuming that the you know bubble isn't quite as bubblicious in 10 years' time as it is today, then we are going to look back and say, you know, back in 2008, during that sort of crisis, the fraud that the big fraud that got discovered was made off in 2021 you know following you know when when that bubble burst the big fraud that got discovered and then who knows what it'll be maybe it'll be bitcoin you know maybe that will be the thing that completely collapses and people lose hundreds of billions of dollars when bitcoin goes to zero but i i have no idea i think a larger conversation in the jewish world that's been going on for decades in one form or another is that there's this kind of fragmentation and a loss of trust and loyalty in large traditional institutions, be they movements or traditional synagogues, federations, 
big establishment organizations, etc. And when I think about Madoff, I think that that can be viewed as one step in that process, where both, you know, A, some of those big organizations and big institutions lost a lot of money. Um, and, and as you said, had, you know, had their governance methods questioned also and kind of the networks in which they, you know, uh, participated. And I think also, you know, aside from the fact that they lost money, when people viewed them, you know, that the, the fact that they invested in, and the fact that they lost money and, and, and didn't do good due diligence in a certain respect kind of led to a greater loss of trust and, and maybe even accelerated the process of a larger kind of loss of loyalty to those institutions. So, you know, that trend has certainly continued over the past 13 years, 12, 13 years. And, and it, it looks like it's going to keep continuing. Um, and and I, I think that when we look back on this, aside again from just the, the raw fact of, of the paper money and the real money lost, I think that we're going to see this as like, okay, this was one more chapter in the way these large Jewish institutions functioned and where we saw a failure in that, in that function. Well, thank you both. More commentary on Bernie Madoff from Alicia Joe Ravens after the break. In a year of big challenges, it's important to come back to big ideas. The kinds of ideas that inspire, ideas that start conversations, Ideas that both speak powerfully to the moment and help us envision a better world. That's why the Shalom Hartman Institute is so proud to introduce you to Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. A quarterly journal being launched this spring, available both in print and online. The first issue tackles current events and systemic challenges alike, including whatever happened to Jewish pluralism, whether Jewish continuity is fundamentally sexist, and the communal implications of life in an extended pandemic. As a listener to this podcast, you're invited to claim your free copy of the inaugural edition of Sources. To get it delivered to your door or to your inbox, visit sourcesjournal.org today. Once again, that's sourcesjournal.org. Thank you. So for our second segment today, I want to move from the prose about Bernie Madoff to the poetry, from Pshat, what the rabbis describe as a plain meaning of a text, to the drash, the explication of deeper meanings towards the hidden truth. And to do this, I'm so thrilled to be joined by the Python of Bernie Madoff, the Jewish liturgical poet of the meaning of the Madoff scandal. Alicia Jo Rabins is a poet, a musician, a songwriter, a playwright, a Jewish educator, and now a filmmaker whose work a theater show that transitioned into a film. And so the film, A Kaddish for Bernie Madoff, comes out weirdly this week. It'll be available online April 24th and 25th. We'll link to that in the show notes. Believe it or not, it's coming out right now, uh, right after Bernie Madoff's death. So first of all, uh, Alicia, thanks so much for, for being here with us on Identity Crisis. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So let's start, let's start easy. Um, what is this story for you? At, at one point in your film, you acknowledge that Madoff was maybe just a jackass making shit, making shit up. <laughs> but he's also the anchor for you of a really big, sweeping moral and theological story. Tell us what that is. And, and for our listeners, the, the film and the theater show is, is not just about Bernie Madoff, it's about the search for meaning uh, in the Madoff story. So tell me what, what, this, is, what this was about for you. Yes, well, I, I, I think of Madoff as kind of a cipher at the center of this piece. 
really, I think this piece is about the society, by which I mean American finance primarily, and then American society more broadly. I'm not saying Jewish society, just to be clear, but the society that allowed him to function um, without really hiding it that well <laughs> um, for, you know, maybe 40 years with, with his scam. Um, you know, I, I'm really intrigued by the kind of emperor has no clothes um, aspect of what he did. And I am just so much less interested in his motivation or his psychology and much more interested in why no one stopped him. I mean, I think there's always going to be outliers among humanity who uh, stumble into or intentionally cause a huge um, hurt and pain over time. And I think part of society's role is to have structures in place that prevent against that. And I, the, you know, I didn't know anything about finance when I began working on this story. And the more that I learned about how his returns had been mathematically impossible all along, the more I just felt like, wow, it's, it's an expression of the messianic desire for consistency in an endless straight line that just goes up um, because he was able to avoid the downturns of the market. And that's kind of what fascinated me most of all from a, a spiritual and psychological pr perspective. Yeah, and almost uh, one line in it is that I think you're quoting from from a Buddhist thinker who says the belief that a life without loss might be possible. So it kind of sounds like in the show, you were not only profiling the story of a person who is constantly on an upward trajectory, but to some degree, all of us who are almost cheering for the Madoffs, we, we, we all kind of want him to keep winning because, wow, imagine where you could just be accumulating wealth and never having a downturn. Was that part of it? Do you feel implicated by it? Absolutely. I mean, for me, you know, first of all, I just want to be really clear. I don't implicate the victims at all. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the regulatory structures <laughs> that it's not individual investors responsibility to, um, you know, vet hedge funds. Um, and, and his returns were not particularly high, actually. They were slightly high, but they're mostly just very consistent. So, so I think many people assume there was this you know, egregious greed going in and really people were just looking for a safe place to put their money. So I just want to be clear about that. On the other hand, I do think that um, I personally, even as someone who had no relationship to Madoff, no you know money, no real knowledge of the stock market, I, I just saw so much reflection in my own personal you know interior life. Uh, I really related to that desire to believe that there's some kind of magical algorithm that can help humans escape the ups and downs of life. I mean, I see it in like billionaires trying to be cryogenically frozen so that they'll never really die. <laughs> and I see it in the way that we interact with, uh, with the environment and with, you know, fossil fuels and um, this sense of like, well, we'll just keep exploiting, exploiting, exploiting so that we can grow, grow, grow. And this kind of um, lack of awareness and, or acknowledgement that, there's, there, that it's cyclical and that we have to, you know, let the land rest and there will be a price to pay for kind of endless expansion and endless exploitation. Yeah, the, the line that I actually, when I was listening to it multiple times in preparation for today, the line that I stopped and then rewound a few times was in one of your songs. Uh, for our listeners, the show is, the movie is is the story about the production of the movie basically of like the search for the search for a piece of art the way in which you describe just being totally rattled by this Madoff story while you were searching for your next art piece and then the evolution of the ideas and the the music throughout is the story uh, but the line that I kept coming back to is the only transcendence is fully embracing the ups and the downs just kind of kept rewinding uh and, and talking about that 
And I should give credit, like that, that was uh, spoken to me by uh, Norman Fisher, who's an amazing um, Jewish poet, scholar, and Buddhist priest um, who runs the Zen Center in San Francisco and has for many, many years. And, um, you know, the structure of this piece was that when I was writing it, I was in an artist residency. I lived in New York at the time, and I had a year-long artist residency with other artists in Lower Manhattan from a nonprofit that took unused real estate. Um, near Wall Street and granted it to artists to work in. So that's how I found myself getting interested because that happened to be the year of the financial crash and the year of Bernie Madoff. And so I had not intended to do anything about my surroundings. I wanted, I'd write songs about women in Tanakh and I wanted to keep writing, you know, song, indie folk songs about biblical women with my Girls in Trouble project. And that's what I went there to do. And then Madoff kind of lured me into this other project because from up close, I was seeing the drama unfold of the 2008, 2009 financial crisis and of kind of the devastation that Madoff wrought. And so another thing that happened is that I realized that I was one degree from many people around New York who had very interesting connections to the case. So there was an FBI agent who was a friend's uncle, and there was a lawyer for some of the victims who was another friend of a friend, and there was a risk analyst who had refused to let her bank invest with Madoff because she saw that it was, uh, there are all these red flags and they, they wanted to fire her, they couldn't, but they were really angry and eventually they actually came back and apologized the morning after. So throughout the film um, are these songs, essentially a musical in a way, <laughs> where um, I took each interview and I transformed their words close to verbatim, in many cases, into songs in these characters' voices of the real people that I interviewed. And then the last one was uh, this monk who had no connection to Madoff, but whose wisdom I thought actually connected everything. And so he's the one who, who said that line to me, and I, I just put it right into the song. I thought the wildest piece of taking other people's words and turning them into song was when you sing the incredibly weird and banal letter that Bernie made up Bernie and Ruth Madoff write to their neighbors about the inconvenience that they've caused to the building and that they slipped under people's door. I was just, I was totally floored by that. Um, can I ask you about this? All these people who you're talking to, who you who you have like one degree basically of, one degree of separation from. There is kind of an undercurrent in the story and in why, like a show like this is interested in the story, which is about Jewish peoplehood. One of the things that is is characteristic of the Madoff scheme is that it's an affinity scheme. People know somebody who knows this guy Madoff and therefore they're putting their money in. And you use the phrase at one point, we trust people who are like us. So there was a, there, there's that kind of gravitation. On the other hand, you say at some other point in the show that there's a false sense that when a criminal from a minority group does something that they represent that culture. Those are kind of the twin ends of Jewish peoplehood here. We are all connected. Many of us are connected through one degree of separation from something like this. On the other hand, are we supposed to feel embarrassed by it? So maybe you can help us unpack, does the first lead to the second? Does the fact that you know people, you're not in the financial world, but you know people connected to it, you can figure out your way through it. What ways do you feel implicated by it? Do you feel embarrassed by the Madoff scandal? Well, I say in this show in the film that one of my first reasons for feeling connected to the story is that I saw his face, you know, I'd never heard of him, and the, the morning after he turned himself into his sons, he turned him into the FBI, um, his face is on the cover of the New York Times, and he looks a little bit like my father, who I love, and have these warm feelings towards, and I just see these sort of like crinkly Ashkenazi Jewish eyes and feel this involuntary um, fondness, and then the next thought is like, why am I feeling this fondness for this 
criminal who destroyed all these people's lives. Um, and, and that is part of what sent me down this rabbit hole and on this journey. I know there's no way that every Jewish person can be responsible for every other Jewish person and their actions. And just like any other minority group, just like any other human, right? I mean, all of these kind of tribal affiliations, like you can, you can keep extending out until you say, well, we're all humans and we're, we are all responsible for one another's actions and, you know, kind of <laughs> sins. And, and also no one is. I mean, you can't, it's just untenable to, to argue that. And in many ways, it's, you know, anti-Semitic or racist or however you're, whoever you're going to, to attribute that kind of responsibility to. And on the other hand, like you're saying, I don't know, there is a, you know, I, I say in the film how on Yom Kippur we recite the confessional prayers, uh, many of them we recite in the plural. And we're like, you know, ashamnu, but Godnu, we're going down the Hebrew alphabet and every verb is in the plural. And we're saying this comprehensive alphabetic, you know, kind of alphabetical list of every sin <laughs> that the rabbis could sort of think of to fill up the alphabet. And we're saying them in the plural. And there is this sense that we are all responsible for one another. And so I think that that tension is a really important tension to hold. And that, you know, part of what I wanted to ask in this film is, I mean, the ultimate kind of refusal of connection would be an excommunication, would be to say, you have gone, Bernie Madoff, you have gone so far beyond what we can allow to be part of our community that you are now out of our community. There is no way in which you represent us. You are no longer one of us. And so that is where the title comes from and where the sort of ritual in the film comes from. That's an artistic <laughs> excommunication. I mean, that's why you would say the Kaddish for someone who was alive until mm -hmm. very recently and was alive throughout the 10 years that I was creating this piece. And so the, you know, the, the balance between this kind of chesed connectedness, uh, mutual responsibility, greater societal mutual responsibility of like, how could, how does the way that, you know, American culture does not take care of our elderly, um, which causes people to have to invest their earnings because they need something to watch over, you know, they need money for when they can't work anymore. I mean, it's all connected, not to, I would say, Jewish culture, but to American financial culture and the structures that hold us or don't hold us. And so there's this there is this connectedness, and then there's this sense of kind of gavora and, and judgment and having to just draw a line and say, you're not one of us anymore, and that would be the argument in my mind for saying the Kaddish for him. Yeah, the paradox of excommunication is that it is a means of owning that somebody is actually part of you and demarcating that you no longer want them to be a part of you. Um, by the way, for our listeners, the, the interesting thing is the movie will come out and people will hear the phrase a Kaddish for Bernie Madoff and think that what that means is you're saying Kaddish for Bernie Madoff as though he's a loved one, when in fact the point of the Kaddish in the film is that Kaddish is an excommunication tool for the living. Um, and so that, and that's what the, the ritual that you're searching for throughout this performance is, is trying to build to. Talk, to. talk a little bit about ritual. Why were you in search of, of, of ritual specifically as an activity that, that you felt that, uh, that you or we need to be doing around a scandal like this? Well, you know, I have a kind of parallel and, and inextricable career as an artist and one as a Jewish educator. And to me, they're really the same thing. <laughs> I like to think about if we kind of zoom back a few thousand years into history, 
I think, you know, theater was ritual and ritual was theater and prayer was poetry and poetry was performance and all of it was interacting with the, the community and um, the divine. And I really see it that way. Um, I think partially perhaps because I did not grow up in any kind of observant home and then I got really interested in Jewish texts and traditions in my early 20s. And so I already had a very deep artistic training as a poet and a musician before I started learning Torah. And so I, in a way, <laughs> Torah for me is kind of fitting into, into that worldview, but also um, transcending it for sure. And so I, I don't know, I think um, I, I make up a lot of rituals in my practice as a Jewish educator and kind of um, lay leader. People will come to me and say, I'm, I'm, I'm having this transition in my life and there's no traditional ritual for it. Can we do something? Um, and I will sort of, like so many kind of innovative Jewish <laughs> leaders on the fringes today, um, help devise personal rituals for people and, and carry them out. And even when I'm officiating B'nai Mitzvahs, which I usually do outside of um, a congregation, I usually work one-on-one -on -one with families that are not affiliated, and I do kind of start to finish. It's a very creative process. I mean, it's obviously profoundly rooted in tradition, but also creative. And so in a way, that's always my instinct when there's a major issue to grapple with, um, is to kind of meet it with the twin tools of art and ritual. And so that's absolutely the process of this the process this film describes and it's also the process of creating this film you know um throughout the pandemic we watched a lot of movies with our kids so one of the things we did was watch all the entire marvel canon basically in order and i learned from that you have to watch all the way through the final credits and so i i watched here all the way for the final credits waiting for um any you know surprise ending um which obviously doesn't appear but there is an incredible and somewhat weird thing that appears on the screen at the end of the film. So now I'm encouraging people to watch for it, where the last thing you see on the screen is the, is the sentence, don't worry, no kosher Torahs were used in the making of this film. Why? Why did you, why? Why is that there? Because I, I do care about, I care about tradition and I respect the Torah profoundly. And so in my negotiating with tradition, um, I'm not, I don't want to smash anything down. I want to be part of our beautiful web, one tiny piece of our beautiful web of continuing to, to grow and develop the interaction with, with Torah and more broadly with just kind of thought <laughs> through time um, and space, my own particular experience. And so in the rituals in the film, there is this small, quote, Torah scroll used. And I really, you know, I wanted people to know I'm, I'm not taking that lightly. This is not a joke. It's not a, a I'm not using a kosher Torah as a prop. Um, and I did have somebody in, in a test screening locally here, um, the parent of a former <laughs> B'nai Mitzvah student, say, was that a kosher Torah? And be a little bit worried about it. And I thought, oh, I don't want anyone to have to think about that. And I, and I want to acknowledge, I mean, the same way that we care about animals and we don't want to harm animals in, in the course of filming. And there's that acknowledgement, you know, um, I, I want to do the same with the Torah. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so let me ask you about gender. Gender obviously is all over this film, but one of the places where it was very clear to me is in all of the ritual context, you're surrounded by women. Um, the minyan, the quorum that comes together for the Kaddish is women. Um, the incredible, and I won't explain this to our listeners, the incredible synchronized swimming scene is all women. And and men appear, the line that I that made me think about this contrast is 
you make reference to the male ancestors um, who are who if they were alive to see what had happened to their money you felt sorry for them because of the psychological devastation it would have wrecked on them just talk talk through a little bit about the choices you're making consciously or unconsciously in this film and in the story around gender because it was it was very as they say in hebrew bolet like it, it was clear that that was part of the exercise yeah well first of all just to, just to be totally clear that line about the men the older men who lost their money that was straight from the mouth of this therapist who i interviewed whose mother had lost everything to madoff and so those were really her words and you know she was this extremely compassionate therapist who was just saying uh, she was just kind of emoting it to me and saying i'm i'm it's actually a blessing that so many people died you know before they found out that that they had lost all their money because it would have it would have destroyed so many people to know that, that what they worked for their whole lives um had, had disappeared I am really interested in what happens when women are at the center of the story instead of on the fringes, um, a kind of you know restorative retelling. In this particular case, it was also created as a one-woman show, so I play all these characters. I step into their, in the film, I, I actually am costumed as them, and I sing their songs that I wrote for them. Um, and so just by virtue of me being a woman at the center of a one-person show, um, you know, in the theater version, I was the only person on stage. <laughs> so that sort of grounds it there. There's also a really interesting um, phenomenon that happened on Wall Street that I read about, um, which is that it was primarily the women who saw through Madoff. And there was actually, this was in a New York Times article, there were some women, uh, kind of high up women in Wall Street talking about how in part because they they had to sort of fight for every scrap they got on Wall Street. They had to work harder. None of them were really grandfathered in in that same way. And so they also could see through some of the assumptions um, since they had come from a little bit of an outside angle. And like this risk analyst who I interviewed, I mean, they looked at the numbers and said, there are red flags everywhere here. This makes no sense. It's literally statistically impossible. Whereas Obviously, you know most of the men in in power um, were were kind of rubber stamping and saying, "Well, this looks good. I'm not quite sure how he does it. He must have some kind of algorithm that has solved everything." Um, and so I thought that was fascinating. And I also, you know, in terms of ritual leadership, um, there's a sort of bait dean, um, a, a sort of um, you know group of three older women who we call the crones in the film, um, in a in a loving, respectful way who appear in various scenes and they, they're sort of the repository of wisdom and judgment and, and sometimes they stand in for the victims and sometimes they're cracking jokes. <laughs> um, and that kind of wisdom, I think, is something that is such a large part of every human tradition that especially in our tradition, which uh, has so prioritized texts, which I also love, but mostly the men were passing down the text. And so I have a, a profound interest in um, exploring, and it's part of my interest in, in creative ritual as well, exploring what does it look like to see tradition through the lens of, of, of women and intergenerational women. And so that's who, who officiated all these rituals and participated in most of them in the film. Yeah, I also felt, here's my just midrash on your work, is I, also, I have always felt with this story that the character who is least understood, least talked about, and who I'm totally perplexed by is Ruth Madoff whose husband perpetrates the worst financial fraud in history, who both of her sons die, almost it's like the book of Job for her, and she's just invisible. And um, and I, I don't know, I felt a little bit like there was almost like an inversion here, 
also related to her who doesn't appear um, kind of addressed in the show at all, maybe because who knows what there is even to say about her. Um, last question for you, because I know that you're, you're, as you said, I think you said yesterday on social media, your phone ringing off the hook because people have what to say about Bernie Madoff today. You know, I, I, I felt watching your work like the fields of Jewish philanthropy, you know, has, is actually oftentimes caught up in Wall Street trends, ROI and return. Art is the opposite. What else do you want to see happen? What could this piece of work as a real um, deep antidote to, to the kind of culture of capitalism that drives so much of Jewish life, what could it do and what would you love to see happen? I love that question so much. And I think as an artist who is a Jewish educator and who works a lot in the Jewish nonprofit world and is involved in various ways with, with granting and, and assessment, um, I do agree that you know, defining ROI through numbers is, is important in some ways and, and can give us a lot of data. And there are other kinds of data, like the data of the spirit is harder to collect, I think. And so I, I do think that there is so much kind of untapped power and, and beauty and life-giving importance in the arts and um, it's not always possible to, to quantify it in the same way, but I think it's such a huge part of what gives life its meaning and in a way it's, I mean, it's, it's a form of, of Torah, I think. And so I just, I mean, I, I essentially love what you said about interrogating ROI a little bit that yes, uh, financial capital is important, but, but creative capital is actually another human um, asset and it's so hard to measure and yet it's it's part of what makes it possible to, to be alive and to hand down our culture so if this you know opens people's eyes to that a little bit um i'm i'm delighted Kaddish for bernie madoff will be online uh, april 24th and 25th uh, we'll send out the link and film festivals really everywhere over the course of this year and and thank you alicia for being with us well, thanks for listening to our show this week, and special thanks to our guests, Ben Sales, Felix Salmon, and Alicia Joe Rabins. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute in partnership with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. It was produced this week by David Svikalman and edited by Tali Cohen with assistance from Miri Miller and music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, you can visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show, and you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast apps, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. We'll see you next week, and thanks for listening.